lesson three through our study of this book, The Israel of God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, do help us on this Lord's day to give our attention to you and to your word, O Lord. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet. Uh, We thank you that it is filled with truth, truth concerning you, truth concerning us and your activity in this world, O Lord. Uh, Truly, uh, the truth of your word does set us free. And so we thank you, O God, uh, for your word. We thank you for the way in which Christ is revealed in the scriptures so that we might run to him and trust in Him for our salvation. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. We've been moving very slowly through this first chapter in the book, The Israel of God. I originally planned on two lessons being devoted to it. It became three, and that will do. I think we'll make it through uh, today. I wanted to get a run-up on part three of our uh, consideration of of this chapter um, by reminding you of what we've considered so far. At the very beginning of this chapter, Robertson introduced the land to us as a theological concept. He reminded us that land is a theological concept that we find in the scriptures beginning with with paradise, beginning with Eden, finding its consummation in the new heavens and new earth. That will be the place uh, that God's people will dwell. He will dwell in the midst of them. He will be their God and they will be His people according to the Scriptures. So land is a very important theological concept. And I've left that little note there. It's a beautiful concept at that because um, I think if you reflect upon it, you'd admit that we all desire to have a place. We desire to have a place to dwell. We as human beings need a place to dwell in order to exist. And the idea of the new heavens and earth being filled with the glory of God is really marvelous to consider. Do you ever wonder what that will look like, by the way? Here here I go elaborating, and now I'm going to run out of time. Do you ever wonder what that will look like? I was out mountain biking the other day when that storm blew in, looking out at all of the clouds and just the glory of God's creation. And Sometimes I just wonder if it will not be very similar to this creation, but just so much more vivid, you know. Uh, so much more crisp. I, I don't even know how to put it into words exactly, but just vivid, uh, crisp, the glory of God manifests the heavenly realm visible to us. It's hidden to us now, but the heavenly realm visible to us, here I'm talking about uh, the angels who dwell in the presence of God in heaven, the glory of God bursting through this creation. I think the creation will be similar to what it is now, but it will be renewed and it will be glorified. Speculation, I guess, but I think these things are okay for us to think about. You know, we, we, we're going to dwell in a place, a place that is redeemed and renewed uh, through the work of Christ. It begins in Eden, ends in the new heavens and new earth. And so, whenever we consider land in the Bible, we must consider the land uh, in that storyline. And so, the land of Old Covenant Israel must be considered in that storyline as a step towards. Uh, the redemption of, of heaven and earth. Okay, so that's a very important concept. And then Robertson moved on to talk about the land and the experience of God's people under the Old Covenant. Again, he says it began with paradise. And when we come to the land that is promised to Abraham, uh, we must see that it is the first step in the retaking of paradise, as it were. And also... Uh, This promise concerning land is restated in the days of Moses. uh, The people of Israel will inherit a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course the land would be that way only by the blessing of God. 
Uh, three striking concepts emerged in the days of Moses and the covenant that was transacted with Israel through him. One, this land belongs to the Lord of the covenant. Two, all blessings flowing from the land come ultimately from the hand of the Lord. Three, the land is uniquely holy. And I will ask you this question again, just like I did last Sunday by way of review. Why was the land holy? What made it holy? God's presence. God's presence. I think that's such an important concept that we need to hold on to. The holiness of the land is inescapably related to the fact that the holy God dwelt there. Part two, that was a focus on the city of Jerusalem. And that was a wonderful section that ran from pages 14 through 17. We devoted a whole lesson to that. Uh, here are the things that I really want you to remind you of. Uh, the city of Jerusalem was a picture of greater realities. It was a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, and it foreshadows also the Jerusalem to come. And here, was, here is what Robertson says at the end of that section, Like all Old Covenant shadows, these glorious prospects have been realized in the days of the New Covenant, when people worship neither in Jerusalem nor in Samaria, but wherever in the world the Spirit of God manifests Himself. And here he is citing John 4, 21-24. It's the clear teaching of the New Testament. There is no particular city or mountain that we are to be concerned with under the New Covenant, because things have progressed beyond that. Uh, something greater is now here. And so we worship at the heavenly Jerusalem, at the heavenly Mount Zion, because the way has been opened up by the sacrifice of Christ. The redemptive reality that the Old Covenant city would, could not only, excuse me, let me try again, the redemptive reality that the Old Covenant city could only foreshadow finds its consummate realization in the Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all, according to Galatians 4.26. This Jerusalem above is not merely a spiritual phenomenon that has no connection with the real world in which we live. Its reality injects itself constantly into the lives of God's people. Every time, every time Christians assemble for worship, they join with the host of the heavenly Jerusalem. That is what Hebrews 12.22 um, uh, describes to us. So, is there a Jerusalem that we worship at? as the people of God under the New Covenant. Yes, it is the Heavenly One. And there is something very special about when we assemble together on the Lord's Day to worship. We join with the Heavenly Hosts in our worship, who worship in the very presence of God. And then this is the line that I so appreciated, bringing that whole section to, to a conclusion. Progression toward consummation in the New Covenant cannot allow for retrogression to the older shadowy forms. If you understand um, the way that dispensationalists think, you will understand why I appreciate that statement so much. Uh, it, there's no place in our theology as Christians for going back to the Old Covenant. There's no place in our theology as Christians for going back to worship at a, at a localized temple uh, made of stone in Jerusalem. There's no room in our theology for going back to an, animal sacrifices or to being under the priesthood of, of Aaron. There's no room in our theology for going back to to considering a particular sliver of land as uniquely holy on earth. Uh, now that the new covenant has come, now that the Messiah has come, it, 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 that all of that way of thinking, the expectation that there will be a, a return to the old covenant forms in some future millennium or whatever the theological perspective is, it just runs against the grain of, of Scripture. It runs against the grain of Scripture. Scripture is moving in this direction uh, redemptive history is progressing from these old shadowy forms to, to greater realities. So to try to go back is to swim against the current or to go against the grain of, of the story 
that is told in Holy Scripture. In fact, I know this sounds radical, and I am not accusing those who hold views like this as being non-believers, but it is a, it is a non-believing way of reading the Scriptures. It, it, it's, a, it's a denial that the Messiah has come, or it's at least a missing of the fact that He has come, and a, a lack of appreciation for all that it means. Uh, the New Covenant is greater, and so we must not attempt to go back to the Old in any way, shape, or form. So now we come to part three of this chapter where uh, the author... Robertson uh, gives special attention to the Psalms and the Prophets. It's actually a very, very, very brief treatment of this. Um, but what he wants, uh, wants to do is just give us a little bit of a taste of the way in which the Psalms and the Prophets um, point forward to expansion in the New Covenant era. That, that even the Psalms and the Prophets look forward to a day when greater things will come, where what God was doing with Old Covenant Israel would, would be greatly expanded, where the nations would be brought in, where the, the land would mean more than just a sliver of land in Palestine. You understand? What he's wanting us to see is that the Old Testament Scriptures themselves, uh, really beginning with Genesis 1, but also uh, in the books of, of Moses that follow, and the experience of Israel in the Exodus and in the, the conquest, um, but even in the Psalms and the Prophets, they, they all point forward to expansion, uh, to fulfillment. Both the Psalms and the writings of the prophets give full recognition to the ongoing significance of the land of promise in redemptive history. So they use the language of land often. Yet the movement toward the new covenant era presses the conception of land well beyond the geographical limits of Palestine. So what we will find in the Psalms and what we will find in the prophets is, is the use of the land terminology, but the way the land is spoken of um, would force those who had faith under the Old Covenant to think, okay, what we are experiencing now in the land, it's going to explode. It's just going to take off. It's going to take on new dimensions. It's going to be so much greater than what we now experience, because the way the land is being talked about here, it it just doesn't fit into our, our current reality. It doesn't fit into our experience under this Mosaic Covenant. Something greater is to come. And then he goes to Psalm 37 to hold it forth as an example. And I have not uh, copied and pasted it here for you in the outline, but I do have it open before me. Psalm 37, it's of David. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers is how the psalm begins. In verse 9 he says, For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. So just think of that statement there. Uh, David is saying that at some point in the future, the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, the the faithful, the, the, the ones who have faith, will be the ones to inherit the land. Did that ever happen under the Old Covenant? No, of course not. It wasn't baked into the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a mixed covenant. Uh, there were plenty of non-believers and unfaithful men uh, who lived under the Old Covenant because they were descendants of Abraham, physical descendants of Abraham, but they had no faith. There were many evildoers who, who were members of that Old Covenant um, who were, in fact, uh, not of faith. So, David is pointing forward to the day when evildoers will be cut off, 
but those who wait for the Lord will be the ones to inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek shall inherit the land. What, what New Testament text does that remind you of? Jesus' teaching on the sermon, uh, in the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount that the, the meek, they will be the ones to inherit uh, the earth is what Jesus teaches. So there's similar language being used here. So David is speaking in such a way where it will no longer be the, merely the descendants of Abraham who inherit the land, the physical descendants of Abraham, but, but, but the righteous and the faithful and, and the meek, they will be the ones who inherit the land. They're the ones who delight themselves in abundant peace. Let me go on quoting Psalm 37 at certain points here. Verse 22 For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. Verse 27, Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. So shall you dwell in the land forever. Verse 29, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Do you hear that word forever? I mean, just think of it. They will dwell in the land forever. Uh, this is speaking of something that is unending and, and eternal. Uh, and then I think there was one more text, one more verse here, verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. He will look on, uh, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. So you could see clearly the theme of land in Psalm 37, but the way that the land is being talked about and the way that inheritance of the land is being discussed here, it goes beyond uh, the, the, the experience of the people under the Old Covenant. In, in, under the Old Covenant, there were wicked men and righteous men who were dwelling in the land uh, together. And they all experienced death and did not take possession of that land forever and ever in an eternal sense. So when will these, when will these things be fulfilled? When will these uh, promises that David speaks of be fulfilled? At the end of time, yes, in the new heavens and new earth. And who will inherit the land? Who will inherit the land at the end of time? Not the descendants of Abraham, physically speaking, but the descendants of Abraham, spiritually speaking. It is those who have faith in the promised Messiah who will inherit the land and dwell in it forever and ever. There will be no wicked in the land. They will be cut off at the judgment. Only the righteous shall dwell there. So the point is, it's, it's very important to see that, that David, King David, when he thought about the land of Israel, the land over which he was king, he knew that its purpose was to grow into something far greater. He knew that it was a picture, a type, a foreshadowing of something greater yet to come. David was a man after God's own heart. He was not perfect in any way, shape, or form, but he did trust in God. He did trust in the promises of God. He wanted to see God exalted and his plans and purposes succeed. So he knew this. He could see this. And, and of course, what you're hearing from me is that the same would be true of all of the faithful of, of God under the Old Covenant era. Abraham didn't just look to the land. He looked to the heavens and the new heavens and earth, which the land that was promised to him signified. The same would be true of Moses uh, and, and here we are looking at David and the prophets after them. 
So this has always been uh, the, the, the point and the view uh, that people had concerning the land, at least those who had faith under the Old Covenant. As this psalm was sung, Robertson notes, the people were reminded that the land was God's gift to them. Only the righteous in Israel, not the wicked, typo again, were assured of the possession of the land, and they would possess the land forever. This psalm, I think this is my note, is about Messiah and all who are united to Him by faith. I get really excited about the psalms, uh, brothers and sisters. Uh, More and more I've I've grown to love how all of the Psalms are really about Jesus. They, what is this Psalm about? Answer, Jesus. Okay, this Psalm is about Jesus. The wicked will be cut off, but it will be the righteous or the meek who inherit the land. Well, who is the righteous one who has inherited the land? Christ Jesus the Lord, full stop, you know, in a sense. And all who are united to Him by faith. He is the one who has earned the land and the right to dwell in the land forever and ever. It is Christ Jesus the Lord. He is the righteous one. And and we need to read all of the Psalms this way, as pointing ultimately to Christ in some way, shape, or form. Look for Christ in the Psalms. He is everywhere present. They are about Christ and they are about our salvation uh, in Him. Okay, that's a bit of a side note, but I think it's one worth making. Some have suggested that God promised unconditionally that Israel would possess the land. This conclusion can be reached only by ignoring contrary portions of the biblical witness. Many of you have been taught that Israel uh, was promised the land unconditionally. That it is that that land, we are here talking about the land of Palestine, must be theirs forever and ever. Because God has promised it to them. Most of you, I think, were probably raised under this kind of teaching. But Robertson is correct to say that you can hold that view only by ignoring contrary portions of the biblical witness. Consider the conditional elements of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. Brothers and sisters... This is why covenant theology is so important. We had a study not long ago on covenant theology. And as your pastor, I'm thinking, this study is so very important. If you wish to understand the meaning of the Bible, you need to understand the doctrine of the covenants. If you do not understand the doctrine of the covenants, you're going to be lost as you read through the Bible in in many instances. You'll be confused about things that were going on in those eras and why things have changed. So we need to understand the, the, the covenants and what their terms were and what their promises and threats were if, if there are threats associated with these covenants. And if we go back to the making of the Abrahamic covenant, we would see that there are conditional elements in it. In other words, there were some things that were promised to Abraham without exception, that God would do this and He would do that, and there are no conditions attached uh, to those promises. Um, But there are also elements of the Abrahamic covenant that have conditions attached to them. You will be blessed if, is the idea, you see. So if we go all the way back to the covenant that was made with Abraham, we will see that there are conditional elements uh, embedded within that covenant. 
the people would be blessed in the land if. We can go to Genesis 17 and let's see if we can very quickly identify these. I have verses 1 through 14 listed, which isn't very helpful because it's such a large, large text. Well, let me start at verse 7 of Genesis 17. In fact, verse 6, God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. It's a promise. Do you hear any conditions there? I don't. So it's going to happen. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's interesting, isn't it? I don't hear any conditions there. And so there are promises that are made to Abraham. And then in verse 9 we see, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So now Abraham is told that he must keep the covenant. He must do something. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be what? Cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there are promises made to Abraham. But then it is also clearly stated that this covenant that God is making with him must be kept, and it can be broken, and if it is broken, there will be a cutting off. So do you hear it? What about the unconditional promise for this land being his as an everlasting possession? How would you interpret that in the light of the rest of the Scripture, brothers and sisters? Let me pause. God said it will be theirs as an everlasting possession. How would you interpret that in the light of the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of the Old Testament, and especially as Christians, the new. In heaven? In heaven? Yes. So we're, you're saying, brother, we're to interpret the Scriptures in a Christ-centered way. We're to see that, that um, the land did belong to Israel from the days of Abraham up until the accomplishment of our salvation by Jesus the Christ. But Jesus the Christ is the son of Abraham. And he, upon his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, did inherit, through his earning, uh, through his active and passive obedience, the new heavens and new earth, a new creation. So, can you see it? Uh, Brothers and sisters, when you begin to read the Scriptures in a Christ-centered way, Um, these promises finding their fulfillment in Jesus, in His person, in His work, and in His reward, that in fact this promise made to Abraham, an unconditional promise concerning the uh, perpetual inheritance, uh, possession of the land, has been fulfilled in Christ. 
It has been fulfilled in Christ. He is the son of Abraham. That's how the New Testament begins. <laughs> the very first line in the New Testament is, introduces Jesus Christ to us as the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so, this is what I mean when I say that to, to, to miss this is really to read the Scriptures in a non-Christian way. In an unbelieving sort of way, missing the fact that the Messiah has come. The point that I was making here that I kind of got off track with is that even in the Abrahamic covenant, there are unconditional promises made, but there are also conditional elements. There's the threat of being cut off should the covenant not be kept, should the covenant be broken. Uh, and we can also see it. I don't think Robertson mentions this text, but I wanted to show it to you. This is Leviticus 18, 26-28. Uh, so, this is Moses... Um, this is the word of the Lord coming to the people in the days of Moses as the old Mosaic Covenant is being made. By the way, the, the Mosaic Covenant is a development of the Abrahamic. They're not unrelated. They're connected. Uh, but this is what the Lord says to the people of Israel in the days of Moses. But you shall keep, there's that language again, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nations, the nation that was before you. So, the people of Israel are to keep God's law. They, they, are, they are not to sin against God and defile the land. And there is this threat embedded within the Old Mosaic Covenant that the people of Israel could be vomited out of the land should they break the covenant. And they were in the exile. And God graciously brought them back so that the Messiah might come into the world. But the point that Robertson is making is that it, it's a misreading of Scripture to think that that land must belong to that ethnic people, the physical descendants of Israel, forever and ever because God promised. It, it's a misreading of Scripture. There was the threat of being vomited out of the land that was declared even to the people of Israel in the days of Moses. And the promises concerning the perpetual possession of the land find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in the new heavens and new earth. We must see the progression in the New Testament. We must read the Scriptures in a Christ-centered sort of way. You all are tracking along with me, aren't you? I think you are. Okay. Maybe what you're thinking is, we know this stuff. <laughs> We've heard it before. Good review. That's great, Pastor. I, I just think it's... Uh, frankly, I think there's a lot of confusion about this, even still. Uh, maybe not amongst our congregation, uh, but just this dispensational way of reading the Scriptures, the, the pre-millennial, pre-tribulational reading of Scripture is so predominant within in evangelicalism. It, it's hard to escape it. It's hard to shake it off. And some of you are listening to people right now, be very vocal, people that have been a great help to you um, to, to develop your, your Reformed and Calvinistic theology. Some of you are listening to people who've been very helpful to you and influential to you get this wrong right now because they are premillennialists, you, you see. And, and so it can be very perplexing. It can be very confusing. I'm wanting to bring clarity here and, and, and to reassure you that this is the proper reading of Scripture. Let's go to Isaiah 19, 19 through 25, uh, looking at um, the, the, the prophet Isaiah. Oh, yes. Robertson makes much of this text. 
This is the prophet Isaiah looking forward uh, in the the history of redemption uh, to things that are to come in the new covenant. In that day, Isaiah says, the Egyptians uh, will... No, 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 a little further down. In that day, verse 19, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of... Where? Egypt. That's strange. <laughs> that, that's not an old covenant um, reality. That, that's, that's something different. Something different is coming. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, uh, strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to where? To Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, and blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now I can just imagine the way that some of these prophecy fanatics would interpret this text. They'd try to figure out in the newspaper when this is being fulfilled. When is this fulfilled? Now? At Christ's first coming? (laughs) Uh, In the days when the Messiah came and said to His disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yes, the nations came in and were engrafted into the people of God, into the covenant people of God. This is describing the days of the New Covenant in total. In the days of the Old Covenant, when Isaiah ministered, there was an altar to the Lord right smack in the middle of Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple. And if the nations were to worship, they had to flock to Israel and to Jerusalem to worship. They had to join themselves to the Old Covenant people of God. But under the New Covenant, it's exactly the opposite. There are going to be people of God in Egypt and in Assyria and Israel will be third. Will there be Israelites, Jewish people who believe in the Messiah? Yes, there will be some. They will worship the Lord too. But they are listed third here by Isaiah the prophet. So, just think of how the people of Israel would have (laughs) received this message from Isaiah. The prophets weren't popular. You understand that? They were persecuted. They were hated. They were very badly treated. The true prophets who ministered in Old Covenant Israel were often very badly treated. Why? Because they were faithful to bring a message like this to the people of Israel. The days are coming when your enemies, the people you hate, the people you despise, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, they will be God's people. And you will be third in line. That, I'm sure, didn't go over well when Isaiah the prophet spoke in that way. But Isaiah the prophet understood the, the flow, the, the, the plan, the, the sweep, the current of redemption. That the point all along was not for Israel alone to be God's covenant people, but through them and through the Messiah that would come from them, the gospel of the kingdom would go to the ends of the earth. Ezekiel 37, 12-14 is also a text that Robertson makes much of. This is that very famous prophecy in Ezekiel about 
uh, the vision that was shown to him, uh, the valley that was filled with dry bones, and yet uh, the word of the Lord is prophesied over the bones and the Spirit of God moves to cause the bones to take life into them again. There are sinews and then muscles and then they arise. There's, it's a, kind, of a, kind of a creepy vision, right? But a, a beautiful vision, a wonderful vision. Uh, and so we will pick it up in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, so Ezekiel in this vision is to do this, uh, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you, place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So it's the prophet Ezekiel promising to bring the people into, into the land, into the land of Israel. But what do you notice about this text? That in, in this day, the people would also be raised up from their graves. And so Robertson makes much of this. He, he, he says... <laughs> Though our premillennial and dispensational friends would want to say that this prophecy was fulfilled in 1948 when Israel became a nation again, the modern nation of Israel, he would say, that's a strange interpretation of this passage because there are some pretty awesome things going on here in conjunction with the people being brought back into the land, namely the resurrection of the dead from, from their graves. As previously noted, Robertson says, the first part of his book describes the departing of God's glory from the city of Jerusalem. That is the first part of the book of Ezekiel. This was mentioned in a previous lesson. So in the first part of the book of Ezekiel, God's glory is pictured as departing Jerusalem. The end of the book, however, describes a return, the return of the glory. But what will be the framework in which this departed glory of the Lord returns? The circumstances made plain in Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Clearly, Ezekiel is talking about a return to the land, but what exactly does his prophecy anticipate? Some interpreters have suggested that the prophet, the prophet is using figurative language that anticipates nothing more than the return of Israel to the land. Biblical references prior to Ezekiel that acknowledge the power of God to raise the dead suggest that the prophet is referring to more than a wondrous return of exiles to the land of promise. The fulfillment of the promise of the land was repeatedly associated with life beyond the grave. And the word from the Lord to Ezekiel fits squarely into this expectation. At a minimum, Ezekiel's prophecy of the return to the land involves God's putting His Spirit in people so that they come alive. This description of new life generated by God's Spirit is most likely, uh, is most likely the scripture that Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand as they discuss the necessity of being born of water and the Spirit in John 3, 5, and 10. But the specificity of Ezekiel's language regarding the uncovering of graves, as well as the context of dry, dead bones coming to life, suggests the anticipation of bodily resurrection. Upon the opening of graves and the coming of life of the dead, a return to the land would be effected. So when will this prophecy be fulfilled? When has it been fulfilled and when will it be fulfilled in total? Say that? At the, yeah, at the end of time. 
on the last day when the dead are when the dead are raised up and they enter into the new heavens and new earth which is the fulfillment of typological Israel this is the Israel that will be possessed forever and ever the new heavens and new earth and so never was it about the sliver of land it was about the new heavens and new earth a restoration of what was lost uh, what was promised and or offered and lost in Eden And then Robertson says, from this perspective it would seem evident that the return of the Jews to Palestine in the 20th century, leading to the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, should not be regarded as a fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. Israel's 20th century rebirth as a nation did not involve any opening of graves, resurrection of the body, inpouring of the Spirit of God, or renewal of life through faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord of life. However, the establishment of the State of Israel may be viewed It does not fulfill the expectation of Ezekiel as described in this vivid prophecy. Instead, this picture of a people brought to newness of life by the Spirit of God leads to a consideration of the role of the land in a context of the new covenant. This is a wonderful observation. This will get you burned at the stake in dispensational churches, this sort of speaking. But it is true. It is true. Um, To view the... Formation of the modern state of Israel, a secular state, a secular state in 1948, does in no way fulfill the terms of Ezekiel's Ezekiel's prophecy here in Ezekiel 37. It doesn't fit the description in any way, shape, or form. You know what fits the description is Christ raising from the dead on the third day, of us having new life in Him, being reborn by the Spirit of God, uh, uh, and, and enabled to believe upon Christ, Those things fit the description, and then all of it finding its consummation, the new heavens and new earth, yes. But not the formation of a secular state in in 1948. Uh, So, it needs to be said. It needs to be said. Whatever we think about the modern state of Israel, whatever your political views are, I think it needs to be said that it's not in fulfillment to biblical prophecy. It doesn't fit the description of Ezekiel 37 or of any other text uh, for that matter. So the land from a new covenant perspective, very quickly. It must be remembered from the outset that any transfer from the old covenant to the new covenant involves movement from shadow to reality. That principle has already been established. The book of Hebrews is very much about that. Uh, So there were old covenant forms or shadows that find greater fulfillment in Christ Jesus, greater realities yet to come. Paul says Abraham is heir of the world in Romans 4.13. Abraham, Paul says, is heir... Of the world. That's very significant. He expected to inherit the earth, uh, not just that sliver of land. So, this was Abraham's view. He had eyes of faith and saw this. And Paul is telling us that this is the proper interpretation of all of the promises that were made to Abraham. He is heir of the world through his son Jesus. Christ has inherited a new heavens, a new earth. Paul says that Christ has redeemed the whole universe in Romans 8 22 through 23. Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.5. Yet, Robertson says, many theologians in the present day continue to interpret the promise of the land in the Old Covenant in terms of its shadowy, typological dimensions, rather than recognizing the greater scope of New Covenant fulfillments. That is a great line found on page 27. Many would view the establishment of the modern state of Israel as a fulfillment of the promise of the land as it was originally given to the patriarchs. And I have here read further... Uh, through first paragraph on page 26. We better do it. I'm already giving you a very quick summary of this chapter. 
Um, so I do hope that you read it on your own to get the, the full argument. So how, how does this long development of the concept of the land under the Old Covenant translate into the categories of New Covenant fulfillment? It must be remembered at the outset that any transfer from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant involves a movement from shadow to reality. The Old Covenant appealed to the human longing for a sure and settled land, yet it could not compare with the realities of the New Covenant fulfillment. Now at the top of page 26. This perspective is confirmed by a number of references in the New Covenant documents. Abraham is declared to be heir not of the land but of the world. By this comprehensive language, the imagery of land as a picture of restored paradise has finally come of age. No longer merely a portion of this earth, but now the whole of the cosmos partakes of the consummation of God's redemptive work in our fallen world. This perspective provides insight into the return of the land as described by Ezekiel and the other prophets. In the nature of things, these writers could only employ images with which they and their hearers were familiar. So they spoke of a return to the geographical land of Israel. Indeed, there was a return to this land, but though hardly on the scale prophesied by Ezekiel. But in the context of the realities of the new covenant, this land must be understood in terms of the newly recreated cosmos, about which the Apostle Paul speaks in Romans. The whole universe, which is the land from a new covenant perspective, groans and travail, waiting for the redemption that will come with the resurrection of the bodies of the redeemed, Romans 8.22-23. The return to paradise in the framework of the new covenant does not involve merely a return to the shadowy forms of the old covenant, nor does it involve merely a return to Eden. It means the rejuvenation of the entire earth. By this renewal of the entire creation, the old covenant's promise of land finds its new covenant uh, realization. Okay, so a good portion of text here. I wonder if I even got the page right, but I think that's of benefit to you. Writing to the predominantly Gentile church in Ephesus, Paul applies the blessing of the fifth commandment to the children of believers, saying they will enjoy long life on the earth if they obey. <laughs> Just kind of a neat observation there. What's the blessing of the fifth commandment originally given to, to, to the children? If you obey your parents, you'll be blessed in the land. Paul picks up the fifth commandment and speaks to Christian children in the church of Ephesus and promises them the blessing of long life on the earth. So there's this expansion here. Think also of the Great Commission. I've already made mention of this. Go and make disciples of all nations. What about Jerusalem? Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, says Paul in Galatians 4.25. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, Robertson says, Jerusalem today remains as it was in Paul's day. It is still in bondage to legalism and rejects the gracious gift of salvation that has come through the Messiah. All of that is found on pages 29 through 30. It's a very important argument. Paul does ask the question, he compares and contrasts the, the Jerusalem of this earth with the Jerusalem above. And here in this text, he says that this Jerusalem, the Jerusalem on earth, is in slavery with her children, enslaved to, to sin and, and in unbelief. And here Robertson is saying that nothing has changed. Uh, the Jerusalem from below of this earth is still in slavery. 
but the Jerusalem above, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. There is another Jerusalem, and this is the Jerusalem that we belong to and that we worship at. Read first full paragraph on page 30. But there is another Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that is above, from which the enthroned Son of God sends forth His Spirit. Apart from this Jerusalem, none of us would have a mother to bring us into the realm of God's redemptive work, for she is the mother of us all. Only those who have been born from above, by the outpouring of the Spirit, from the throne of Christ, situated in the heavenly Jerusalem, can claim to be citizens of the kingdom of God. Well said, well stated. And now let me read the conclusion, uh, as I'm out of time yet again. And the, It's not even funny anymore, is it? I, just, I do this every time. In the process of redemptive history, a dramatic movement has taken place. So this is the conclusion to the entire chapter, a great summation of it. The arena of redemption has shifted from type to reality, from shadow to substance. The land which was once the specific place of God's redemptive work served well in the realm of Old Covenant forms as a picture of paradise lost and promised. But in the realm of New Covenant fulfillments, the land has expanded to encompass the whole world. In this age of fulfillment, a retrogression to the limited forms of the Old Covenant must be neither expected nor promoted. Reality must not give way to shadow. By claiming the Old Covenant form of the promise of the land, the Jews of today may be forfeiting its greater New Covenant fulfillment. Rather than playing the role of, of Jacob as heir apparent to the redemptive promises made to Abraham their father, they could be assuming the role of Esau by selling their birthright for a fleshly pot of porridge. That is a wonderful statement there. Indeed, this view uh, that the land still has significance, it's worldly. It's worldly is what it is. It's unbelieving. And so we need to urge fellow Christians and non-believing Jews to see that Messiah has come and the fulfillment to these things has come and to place their faith in Him, right? Evangelical Christianity in particular should take care to, imply, to apply the implications of Pauline theology to the current situation with regard to the land. For Paul emphatically notes that if you let yourself be circumcised, an old covenant institution, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Galatians 5.2 In a similar way, if the promised land of the old covenant becomes the blessed object to be achieved, then its tremendous fulfillment in the new covenant could be missed. To claim the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews 11.10, Abraham had to look beyond the shadowy form of the promise, which he never possessed, to the realities that could be perceived only by faith. How sad it would be if evangelical Christians who profess to love the Jewish people should become a primary tool in misdirecting their faith and expectation. The land in its totality and in its final form belongs to the Lord. In His grace He has given it to the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. The proper identification of this Israel of God that may claim the promise of the land in the new covenant will be the subject of the next chapter. Who is the Israel of God? We will come to it. It is all who have the faith of Abraham in Abraham's son, Jesus Christ the Messiah. That is the Israel of God. We have talked about the land. We will begin to talk about the people. Let's pray. Father, do give us understanding. For those who know these things already, I pray that you would solidify these beliefs. Lord, I pray for those who do not know these things, who have been taught otherwise, that you would help them to sort through these things. I do pray that the end result would be 
a greater love and appreciation for Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, that we would love Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of God. And that we would see the great salvation that He has worked for us. That we would see how beautiful our inheritance is. We know that it is stored up for us on the basis of the finished work of Christ and the new heavens and new earth. And we long for His return, the consummation of all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.